Good morning, New Hope. But you know what? I think we should just give the guys that have been stressing out under this technology, let's give them a hand because they got there. Thank you, guys, all of you. Thank you very much. If you'd like to take your outline, we're in the final of the series called Bless This Home. Now, it doesn't matter whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you had kids and your kids have gone, these principles will absolutely be useful. George Gallup says one of the main causes of arguments in marriages is how we spend money. 65% of all marriages argue over money, and it's one of the leading causes of divorce. And by the way, that doesn't mean whether you, whether you haven't got much of it, or whether you get a lot of it, or whether you're out in the middle. These principles are the same. In fact, I've suggested sometimes maybe we should change our vows, not until death do us part, but until debt do us part, which is often what happens. Richard Halverson, on the screen there. Jesus Christ said more about money than of any other single thing because when it comes to a man's real nature... Money is of first importance. Money is an exact index to a man's true character. All through scripture, there's an intimate correlation between the development of a man's character and how he handles money. Just to build on that, I did a quick search this week on my computer, and there's over 123 scriptures that deal with the word money. 25% of the parables have financial implications. So what do I deduce from that? God has something he wants to say very deeply about money. And again, how many of you know that if you don't manage your money, your money will manage you. I've seen this happen with many companies. They do not pay attention. And then all of a sudden they have no control because a liquidator comes in. Or a receiver comes in and they have no say. So either you manage your money or somebody else will manage you. So, Jesus says this. That the way you handle your money is directly related to your spiritual maturity. That's confronting. He says this in Luke 16, 11. If you have not been trustworthy, worthy of trust. And actually, it's his money anyway because he owns everything. The trust is given to him by you, uh, is given to you by him. Have you been worthy of trust, trustworthy in handling worldly wealth? That is talking about cashola, money. Actually his. Who will trust you with the true riches? So in other words, what he's saying there, our finances are a true test of your character. And today we're going to look at some of God's financial principles from Solomon, who was a billionaire. And he wrote these down in a book called Proverbs. Now, I want to say at the very outset something quite sobering. You may have read some of these principles before. My question to you is, are you applying them? 
Most of us, for example, understand it's important to read the Bible and memorize verses, but here's the deal. Comprehension without application is meaningless. Let me just say that one sentence again. Comprehension without application is meaningless. It's like your boss goes away on a holiday and he sends you an email. Whilst he's away and he sends you clear instructions on those emails. Now, when he, he'd be impressed if you memorized and quoted his emails word for word. But the primary outcome he's looking for is following his plan and actioning the plan that he sent you in that email. So if you truly evaluate your life based on applying the scriptures to your life, you will not be the same one year for the next. And right there, that is a key for some of you sitting here today because you are stuck in your walk and you wonder why you are stuck. The reason is the lack of application of Scripture. You will not be the same if you do apply the Scripture one year from today. You will become more like Christ. Because His purpose in giving His Word is that we may learn His truth and live out His truth in a way that makes a difference. In the way that we make decisions and the priorities we choose. Now, with that in mind, let's dig in. But let's remember the purpose is application to become more Christ-like. So, first question, knowing that money is a source of angst in many people's lives, if it's not now, it probably will be. How do we get in trouble? How do we Kiwis get in trouble? The Bible says here, human desires are like the world of the dead. There's always room for more. Remember? Oh, if I could just buy this thing, then I'd be satisfied. And that works for a while, right? And then it kind of loses its luster. It loses its shine. And then we're looking for something else. And then something else, whoa, grabs our desires. And whoa, and we start to focus on that. Someone once asked Howard Hughes, how, who had a lot of money, how much money does it take you to be happy? And his famous quote was this, it just takes a little bit more. A little bit more. There's a trap in that. It's not money itself that we actually desire, though, if you look a little deeper. It's the things that we think, mostly falsely, that money will bring. And here are the three quick things that we think money will bring. We think that money will bring, the more money you have, it will bring you more satisfaction. That's the first thing we think. And that is a myth. The problem is, your yearnings will always exceed your earnings. I noticed this with some of my sales guys. They have enormous salaries. And then what they would do is they'd buy this enormous place, strip and gut the place, and then when they built that, did they stay there? No. They were on to the next thing, and on to the next thing. And one of my guys got caught like that when all of a sudden his wife got deathly sick in the middle of it. And the place was stripped to sticks in the middle of Takapuna Beach. Millions in the hole. So we think that having more will bring more satisfaction. And that we've got to be careful that our yearnings, that means what we, we're desiring, is not exceeding our earnings. See, the Bible says you will never be satisfied if you long to be rich. It's like an insatiable desire. You will never get all of you want. And that's the truth until you get to heaven. 
Because the desire to acquire keeps on going, oh, just one more, just a bit more, just a newer, just a bigger, just the latest. As Walter Lifefield writes, and he is a distinguished press, uh, professor at um, Trinity, he says, greed seeks possessions which are not equated with true living. I think somebody else said that as well. In fact, they become a substitute for the proper object of man's search and worship. See, without God, people search and worship money and possessions. And Jesus was really clear. He said, you guys need to wake up. Your life does not consist of possessions. It'll all be gone. You're not taking one cracker with you. Not one. The second reason why we think and we tend to chase after money is we think if we have more of it, we'll have more significance. Number two, more significance. We think if I have more, I'll be more respected because I have a bigger house, the latest phone, a different car, whatever it may be. I'll be more admired by my peers. I'll be more important in whose eyes? Not in God's. He owns it all. It doesn't impress him. Oh, look at this verse. A true man's life is not made up of the things that he owns. No matter how rich he may be. Luke 12, 15. You go back and look at that. So what he's saying there is never confuse your value with your valuables. Some of the people that Helen meets on the field haven't got two brass razus to rub together. But they are worth equally as much as us. It's nothing to do with material wealth. Don't confuse your net worth with your self-worth. Because if you haven't got a lot of net worth, your self-worth will be in the toilet. That's what he's saying there. And we think that having more will make us more significant and make us more happy. Friends, I know some people who have got hundreds of millions of US dollars. And let me tell you, their lives are complicated. Very complicated. Jesus gives a very strong example to make this clear. And this, if you want something to challenge the pants off you, you go home and read Luke chapter 12, starting at verse 16 this afternoon. Talks about a man who had a successful business. He had a reasonable income. And then he builds bigger barns to contain his increase whilst not giving a rip about other people. He only thought of himself. My mortgage, which was an everlasting path for slave labor until he departs terra firma because it keeps getting bigger and gearing up and gearing up in God's eyes he was mindless not significant stupid third thing we think having more money it'll give us more security more security question how much do you need to have to be secure friends money can be lost very quickly and you can lose it all so it doesn't bring security all. See, the Bible says here in Proverbs 23, 5, your money can be gone in a flash as if it had grown wings and flown away like an eagle. You say, not my investment. I say, that's not true. 
You don't know that. You're presuming on the future. Whenever you borrow, you are presuming on the future. Solomon says we think it will bring more significance, more security, and more satisfaction. But it doesn't bring all that. He ought to know because he was a billionaire. Even his plates and glasses were made of pure gold. So what having more really brings? Let's get a balanced perspective on this. It brings more expenses. If the grass is greener on the other side of the fence, you can bet the water bill is higher. It costs more to have more. And people today struggle on what 10 years ago seemed an absolute fortune. I know people who are broke on 150 grand. Broke. The more money you have, the Bible says, the more you spend right up to something. Now the trick, guys, is you start small and you are content with that. Whilst your salary goes up, don't step up. Pay, get yourself, leverage it properly, but be really careful you don't have an ever-ending debt cycle. Oh, I can sell it. Yeah, you could. Assuming the market's up. And not everybody else is selling it. I've been to the seventh largest economy in the world and lived in it, and I've seen houses fall by 40%. So Desmond sells says, I sell mine, Pete sells his house, everybody else is on the market. Guess what happens to the value of your house? It's down, baby, until it's upside down. In Las Vegas, 90% of the houses were upside down not long ago. That means they owed more than what they were worth. Be careful. And that doesn't matter whether you've paid your mortgage off or not. Do not put your hope in riches. The more you have, the more you spend right to the limits. People often do that, topping up the mortgages, topping them up, topping them up, topping them up. Anyone like to give a testimony on that one? The second thing that comes with is more worries. Tenant broke this. The investment went south. Somebody, did you see Samsung last, uh, last week? Serious violations of corruption within Samsung right now in South Korea. My stock portfolio, whatever it may be. A working man gets a good night's sleep, but a rich man has so much that he stays awake worrying. That's what you get with this. We worry about how to protect it so people aren't stealing it or vandalizing it. Insure it, and we plan tax strategies. It takes money and effort. Some studies have shown that as income increases, so does insomnia. The, second, the third thing is more pain if it's lost. More pain. How risky investments turn sour, and soon there's nothing left. It's all swept away. The rest of his life is under a cloud. Notice these things. <laughs> Notice the way he describes this. I love this. Gloomy, discouraged, frustrated, and angry. Friends, I know. I've done okay in my past business life, and I've also taken a smoke in it. I've owned some of the, the largest company in the world, and I saw that stock price drop by 60%. So be very careful. Four kinds of pain that verse talks about, gloomy and depressed. Oh, God. And you know what you think? Oh, man, if I'd just given away that money. And have been banked in the kingdom forever, whatever. Discouraged, it talks about there. Look at that, number four. Three, frustrated. Then he talks about angry. Furthermore, family pressures. You know that finances put families under pressure. Because when you're saying yes to looking after, maintaining, and pursuing those finances, you're saying often no to your family. And there's a balance on that. So how do you get your finances under control? Solomon then goes on to give five ways that he clearly shows us in God's word of how to avoid financial trouble. Number one is keep good records. You must keep good records. Pedantic. Pedantic. 
This is accounting, knowing where your money is going. The Bible says riches can disappear fast. So watch your business interests closely. Watch them. Don't ignore them. Know the state of your flocks. For some of you, I just want to challenge you right up front. Practical thing to do this week. I want you to all go and check the performance of your KiwiSaver. Some of you are in ridiculous KiwiSavers. You're in conservative and depends upon the age that you are. But if you are under um, 56 years old, 57 years old, you should not be in a conservative portfolio. You're wasting money. How is yours performing against everybody else? That's what it's saying there. Hey, you, notice here. Know the state of your stocks. Oops, did I say flocks? Same thing. That's what it was. That was your business in those days. Now, if you want the truth on that, I would recommend a good truth source external to New Zealand, which I use all the time. It's called Morningstar. You may want to write that down, Morningstar. Go to morningstar.com.au and look up the Kiwi, um, the, Kiwi, uh, the Kiwi Savers. And that will rank them according to their performance. Now, if you're in conservative or if you're in, if you're in growth stocks, uh, which, by the way, they're actually mutual funds, so let me be specific here. Look at those and see where yours is. Don't ignore it. The Bible says they know the state of your stocks. Now, I know that's a stretch. It says flocks, but it's actually about the state of your business. If you had flocks, you go and check the lambs under their tails, make sure they're healthy. Make sure you know what's going on. Don't, I haven't got time for that. This is biblical, and it's important to do. Watch your business interest closely. And by the way, when you're in a KiwiSaver, you're effectively investing in somebody else's business. So you should know what's going on. Did you ever say, oh, I just don't know where my money goes? If you ever said that, you're in trouble because you should know. That's a warning because it says you should know. Listen, here it goes. Ignorance plus easy credit equals disaster. Catastrophe. You have to plan your spending. In order to plan your spending, you have to keep good records. Because then you measure it against what your records were. Four things each one of you, husbands and wife, should know as a joint entity. Four things. Critical, the base four things. Number one is what you earn. Husband, do you know what your wife earns? Wife, do you know what your husband earns? You should know that, number one. Number two, what you spend. Do you know, both of you, have you got visibility on what you're spending? On groceries, rates, insurance, giving, whatever else it may be. All of those expenses, do you know what they are? Thirdly, uh, what you own. Exactly what are your assets worth at this moment? And then fourthly and finally, what you owe. Those are four basic, irreducible numbers that you and your wife or spouse or whatever it may be know. Now you may say, oh, I don't have time to keep good records. Well, do you have time to worry about your finances? If you took the time that you spent worrying about them and used it to keep records, you'd have a lot less to worry about. So get after keeping records. And by the way, for the record, my wife's sitting here. Since 1993, my wife and I have kept a track of every dollar that has been spent since 1993. So I can show you, just telling you the other day, how I, it's a pleasant surprise to me how our grocery bill has gone through the floor since my children left the house. <laughs> It was unbelievable before because we had four, three gannets and a little petite girl. She didn't eat much but those other gannets were like having horses. The point is, 
We keep a track of all of that. We keep a track of our, all of our income, or what, we, uh, what we earn and what we spend, everything. Because we tend to run it through our credit card, but we pay it all off. With zero. I've never paid one dime of interest on my credit card in my life. And those of you who are smart know why I do that. Why do I do that? Oh, hello. Air points. I've got about a million air point miles for free. Now, if they're going to charge me 2.5% and say, stop, no, I'm not doing that because it's more expensive if you know about that. So the point is, keep good records. Back to 1993, I can. You may want to start today. If you're a young person, start today. B, plan your spending. Plan it. This is the principle of budgeting. The Bible says here, look at this, in Proverbs 21, plan carefully and you will have plenty. Now notice the next part. That's a positive. Here's a negative. If you act too quickly, you will never have enough. Now notice those words, too quickly, right? Solomon is talking about impulse buying, which is unplanned expenditure. Many people cannot resist the word sale. Oh, it's like a magnet. Look at how much I'm going to save. And the Bible says, though, you need to plan your spending. Friends, spending can be like any other addiction, but it can be controlled. And you say, well, I can handle it. Well, yeah, let's see how it's going. Yes. Now, if you have a problem with spending, can I highly recommend Christians Against Poverty, CAP. They will help you get your finances under control for free. If you are deeply in the hole, where you're almost teetering on bankruptcy, go and see Christians Against Poverty. They will help you confidentially and for free. Because Jesus did not set you free to let you get yourself back in bondage to debt. Because this is how it works. I owe, I owe, it's off to work I go. And that drives you for the rest of your life. Get out of that. As soon as you can. Otherwise, the borrower becomes the lender's slave. And they will own your life. At some stage... You've got to let that go and get on with the stuff that Jesus wants you to do with the kingdom. So how do you break the habit? Well, it's spelled B-U-D-G-E-T, budget. You tell your money where it's going rather than wondering, where the heck did that go? You tell it proactively. The Bible says here, Proverbs 21, verse 20, stupid people spend their money as fast as they get it. So here is one practical thing I'd like you to do this week, husbands and wives. Every one of you in this room is to write an updated budget. An updated budget. Where you both agree on the expenditure. Because unity is absolutely essential. An expenditure. Okay? It should be a matter of prayer. Sounds like one of my sons. He's in Germany at the moment. And it should die. That's a... uh, He's gone. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's only a guy who called me this time in the morning. So it should be a matter of prayer. And ask God's wisdom. And be sure that you both agree the budget. Because otherwise you're setting yourself up for a real problem. And it should include three areas, by the way. It should have a, 
an income, or at least, at least three, but let me go from this area. It should have a savings goal. It should have a spending goal and it should have a giving goal. And it also should have an income goal. And you need to agree them together. See, we need to save for the future. That's what the Bible says. The Bible encourages saving. Saving for the future. This is the principle of investing. And uh, be very careful. I used to work as a futures broker and a stockbroker. And in futures, let me tell you from my experience, 90% of the people lose money. 90% of my clients who thought they knew what they were doing lost money. If you want a really good book, probably the best at my line of sight on investing is a man by the name of Jack Bogle. He started Vanguard. He's probably one of my heroes and his philosophy I follow more than anybody else's in the world. Here's something shocking. Fact. Number one. Do you know... Can you pop the slide up if you can? Here we go. Look at this. This is fact. I just yanked it this week. I checked it with Stats New Zealand. This is the OECD. The average Swiss family, hey, saves 18% of their income after all expenses, giving, and everything else. 18% they save. This is a fact. The average US family saves a miserable 7% after everything. The Australian families, they got old cousin bros across the ditch, 3.51%. They're the facts. Kiwis, an abysmal minus 1.38% spending more than they earn. And as you look, that's pretty consistent all the way along. It's atrocious. Something is wrong. Why is that? I'll tell you why that is. I'll tell you what the explanation for that is right now. It's I have it to have it now mentality. I've noticed a lot of young people want to have a home that's taken me 30 years to get to. They want all the latest things and all the latest trinkets, and all the latest toys, and phones that cost a blooming thousand dollars. They're busy keeping up actually with the Joneses. That's what it's actually called, and that's unadulterated. It's called envy. That's what the scriptures call it. Envy. Be careful. Don't base your lifestyle on what everybody else around you has, because they are as indebted as you would not believe. Don't try keeping up with Joneses because about the time you catch up with them, they refinance and go again. Know and be sensible when to stop. The Bible says a wise man saves for the future. A wise man. The, the implication is, what's the, what's the negation of that? A fool doesn't. He spends all he gets. Now notice this too. <laughs> Proverbs 13, Proverbs 13. A wise man also grows... He grows rich who accumulates little by little. Be careful of these get-rich-quick schemes. Oh, my goodness. Most new businesses fail. I won't drill into that. D, important point. Offer your first fruits. It comes from the agrarian economy. When you planted it and sowed, and the first fruits, the first fruits of the crop will be offered to God. Randy Alcorn says this, the principle is timeless. Doesn't matter. There is a powerful relationship between a person's true spiritual condition, true, authentic, 
not fake and phony, and his attitude and actions concerning money and possessions. In the Christian community today, there is more blinders, blindness, excuse me, rationalization and unclear thinking about money than anything else. Then I'd like to just share this one line from C.S. Lewis. He who has God and everything has no more than he who has God alone. See, tithing is like the training wheels when it comes to giving. The training wheels. It's intended to get you started, but it's not recommended for the Tour de France. 10% of what I make goes right back to God to honor him as number one in my life. Now, most of you understand this, but for some of you it may be new. Why do I bring my offering to God? Well, firstly, out of an act of gratitude for everything that he's done, and it reminds me of my dependence upon him. I was reminded of my dependence this week. One of I felt as crook as a dog for the first time in about 10 years. Oh, boy. My life is... And health. Your health is your wealth. You may want to write that down. For some of you, you've been neglecting going to the gym and keeping fit. Your health is your wealth. Doesn't matter how much money you got. If you're dying, doesn't mean the hell of beans. I saw that, Desmond. Act of priority. Okay, it shows that God is an act of priority. And I prove it with money. I put my money where my mouth is. Otherwise, it's all talk. And Paul talks about that later on. And an act of faith. God wants you to be like him. And God is a great giver. For God's love he gave. Here it is. Honor the Lord by giving the first part. Not after I've taken all his crops in for myself. I'll do the whole lot. Take it all in. Stuff it all in my barns. And then, oh, there may be a bit left. Nah, it's a little much. That can be God's. That's not the principle anywhere in Scripture. I challenge anybody to find that in Scripture. It's not. Honor the Lord by giving him the first part. Not the last part of all your income. And you will fill your barns to overflow. Not the leftovers. Here's the principle. Whatever you want God to bless you, put him first. And the purpose, here's a, how clear could this be? The purpose of tithing is to teach you to always put God first in your lives. I've done that since I've been at university. On a paper run, actually. In fact, it goes back earlier than that. When I was 13 years old, I still had a paper run. And my pay per month was $7.50 for getting up at 5 in the morning. That was four Wednesdays delivering the courier for $7.50. The purpose of tithing is always to teach you to put God first in your lives. When do I do it? The Bible says here in 1 Corinthians 16 2. On the first day of every week, that's on, that's on every Lord's Day, Sunday, when we go to worship. Set aside some of what you have earned. See, there's actually some there. And give it as an offering. Now, the Lord doesn't say $20 or $2,000. He just says the amount depends upon how much the Lord has enabled you to earn. That's what it says. So your first fruits offering is an act of worship. And you give it when you worship. Now, Kimberly and I support Tearfront. Actually, one thing that really convicted me, some of you were at, you were at Helen's deal on Thursday night. There was about 300 people there. Now, Helen has three children. Right? Most of you know that? She's got three children. Hope, Eva, and Maz. Actually, the truth is, she has ten. 
She has 10 children. She's a missionary, and she has seven sponsored children. So what you saw on Thursday night shows she's a real deal, and that challenges me. If she, on a missionary salary, sponsors seven children, what am I doing? Now, we do support Tear Fund and other parachurch organizations like WIC and other worthy causes, but that is not tithing. Tithing is an act of worship where the first 10% of your money and my money that God has allowed me to manage, it's actually his money. I'm just allowed to manage it. He says, you can manage the other 90%, but those 10% I want for my purposes. It's an act of worship to put them first. John D. Rockefeller was once one of the wealthiest men in America was asked, what's the secret of his wealth? And this is his words, not mine. And not even scriptures. He says, save 10%. Save 10%, which those Kiwis need to jack it up a bit. Tithe 10% and live on the rest. Now, if you don't have enough money to give an offering and save, let me say it in as short a sentence as possible. You are overspending. Be happy with what you have and watch your values. E, and finally, and this is so important, enjoy what you have. This is the principle of contentment. And this principle is violated all over East Auckland. You see, it's, sometimes we're so busy hustling, we don't even enjoy what we've already got. Check your garage out. Anybody check your own garage out lately? See, we get, first we get so overextended and we're under financial pressure. And then you have to spend every hour that God sends to make ends meet. And then you're exhausted. I hear so many women who are exhausted. I don't blame them. And third, soon, the home life and the marriage begins to deteriorate because there's no energy left because we've given everything to that job. And everybody is shattered from overwork. I see this all across the nation. And not just here. I see this in America. And then we get irritable because we're so tired and we don't even want to communicate. There are implications downstream and we don't have time for each other, much less the kids because we're always busy trying to earn the money to pay for the things that were bought and a lot of it we don't need. Homes all over East Auckland are filled with absentee parents. So let me say this as clearly as I can. Friends, kids do not need things. Kids need parents who are present. Kids need attention. And I often wonder if by our lifestyle to hustle and to make ends meet, that we, it deeply concerns me that we're teaching our kids that more is better. That's a lie. It's not. There are things that are more important than money, like a home filled with love. Nothing can replace that. See, kids need attention, not things. In fact, some of the beautiful homes I see in California and in New Zealand can just be fancy tombs where it's deathly quiet, not filled with love and joy and laughter. The families are dead inside. The relationships are dead. The marriages are dead from overwork. Too busy trying to make payments on everything else. 
And then what you find sometimes is absentee parents feeling guilty about that, so they buy their kids ridiculously expensive things to make themselves feel better because they haven't been with them. Friends, kids need attention. Kids do not need more things. Now, the greatest threat to marriages and families comes down to overcommitment due to financial obligations. Friends, it's better to have beans and love than steak and strife. We rationalize by saying, well, it's busy now, but one day things are going to slow down. It's just temporary. Really, honey? Friends, learn to live on less so they can spend more time with family. Because what I've observed is people say, oh, it's just temporary. It actually morphs into something that's a permanent lifestyle. And there's a frenetic pace. It becomes a habit. So the solution is learn contentment. Paul is clear here. Look at this. It's an extended verse, but read it with me carefully. Look at it. But godliness with contentment is of great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and we will take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. People who want to get rich, listen carefully, fall into temptation. And then trap into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction for the love of money. It's not whether you have money, it's whether money has you. And you can tell whether you have money and or money has you is can you let go of it? If you can't, it's got you. Who's in charge here? For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Notice this last verse. Some people eager for money have wandered away from the faith. Do you know that there's some people sitting here in this room today that in years' time will not be here because of that exact verse? They have been pursuing money to the nth degree. And they've wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Hebrews 13.5 says, keep your lives free from the love of money. And here's the point. And be content with what you have. Because God has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Friends, money and material positions are unworthy of our faith, our hope, and our love. An obsession with wealth and the insatiable desire and need for more indicates a lack of contentment with what God has provided. Now, it does not contradict having financial goals. But it's the attitude of a heart demonstrated in actions that count. Ecclesiastes 6 9 says, It is better to be satisfied with what you have than always be wanting something else. Second to last verse, if God gives a man wealth and prosperity, no, excuse me, and property, same thing, he should be grateful, here's a principle, grateful and enjoy what he has worked for. It is a gift of God. So here's the bottom line. Job says this, very sobering. And I want us to look at this carefully. If I 
have put my trust in money. If my happiness depends upon wealth, it would mean that I have denied the God of heaven. Money is not God. Jesus is God. Why? Because whenever you, whatever you trust for your security is your God. I would suggest that today you make a mental shift and say, I am no longer going to put my trust in materialism, but I'm going to firmly put my trust in God and His Son. Let's bow our heads. Father, I know that there are some here today feeling the pressure of financial commitment. They're worrying about bills. And many are caught up in the East Auckland syndrome. The lust of the eyes, the desires of the flesh. Lord, these principles today that you have put in your word, thank you for sharing them through your servant Solomon. But even though they were a long time ago, they're still very valid today. For those that are here, have you ignored any of these truths? Have you let them slide? How about the principle of accounting? Do you know where you stand financially or have you no idea? How about planning? Are you a victim of impulse buying, egged on by ads? Or a broader question, do you have an agreed family budget? How's your saving for the future going? Hopefully a whole bunch better than an average Kiwi. How about tithing? Have you been afraid to do what God's asking you to do? Worried that he may not keep his promise? How about this last one? Enjoying what God has already given you. Have you learned contentment? Or do you feel a constant gnawing, insatiable desire to acquire more? Friends, disorganized finances are merely a symptom of an oversubscribed or disorganized life. You need guidance and you need a manager. Or perhaps your finances have had a place of too much predominance in your life. And remember, Jesus said this clearly. A man's life does not consist of his possessions. It's what you do with him for Christ's sake. If you truly want to follow the Lord in your life, ask yourself, are you willing to apply from the scriptures the things we have seen today in God's word? If you do, you will not be the same one year from now and you will change. You will become more like Christ because you will have applied his truth by the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, thank you for your word. Would you move sovereignly? Arrange us, Lord. Arrange our finances, arrange our attitudes, challenge them, Lord, and change us to be more like your son. We ask it in the powerful name of Jesus.